You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. had, those of you who are new, I've just been back from sabbatical, been kicking around here for a few weeks, but this is my first week um, standing back in the pulpit, and it is humbling and uh, an honor and a privilege to be able to do that once again. I'm so thankful for it. Um, Let's uh, dismiss the kids uh, as the kids are making their way out. Um, Just invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, We'll let the stampede make its way by. If you don't have a Bible on you, or maybe you don't have a Bible at all, um, I just encourage you to slip up your hand. Um, Jared would love to put a Bible into that hand. We want you to have God's Word open in front of you. And so, however you want to do that, um, but right now you should be able to look down and see Ephesians 3, so that as I speak... Um, you're able to see um, what is John's words and what is God's words and able to say, oh, there it is. That's what he's saying. Um, Hopefully the two go together seamlessly. That is the goal, that we would proclaim the word of God. And uh, so we're going to look at Ephesians 3, uh, verses 14 to 19. And this passage, as you look at it, you'll see very quickly, uh, it is a prayer. It's a prayer of Paul uh, for the church in Ephesus. We looked at the first half of it last Sunday, verses 14 to 17, out at the camp out, just kind of did a deep dive into that first section. And uh, this week, we're going to kind of recap that first half, uh, and we'll keep going into the rest of the passage through the end of the chapter. Um, But before we go there, I want us to just get some perspective for a minute. Um, There's an iconic line in, in one of the many iterations of the Batman movies, Um, I don't remember it well, and frankly, it's not worth looking up, Um, but it's stuck in my head. Uh, The scenario generally is Batman has been beat down, and he is badly wounded, he is discouraged, he's on the edge of of giving up, and uh, of course, good old Alfred comes to the rescue and uh, reminds him of something that his father once said, and I think there's like a flashback, and, and he sees himself uh, having fallen into a pit and hurt himself badly, discouraged and scared, and his dad comes down to save him, and, uh, and his dad asks him, uh, why is it, Bruce, that we fall down? And before he, well, giving him a chance to answer, he fills in the rest so we can learn to pick ourselves up again. And that's this great moving moment, the turning point in the film, and, and uh, of course, hearing his, his father's wisdom and Alfred's perfect British accent, uh, he's able to, to muster his strength and pull himself together and beat the bad, bad guy and, and win the day. And we love it. We love it. That's what good movies are made of. And we take that little nugget of supposed wisdom and it finds its way into the back of our heads and it, and it kicks around there for a little while because uh, that's what pumps us up. That's what gets us going. 
We love to be told, you're enough. You are strong. You are the solution to your problems. You need to, you need to look inside yourself. The, the problem is, as the world is screaming out, you're strong, you're capable, you're enough, you, you need to have confidence in, in you, um, God in the gospel is quietly whispering back, no, no, you're not strong. You're not capable. You are not enough. And that's okay. That's okay. The world says we fall so we can learn to pick ourselves back up again. The gospel says, the Bible says, one example, 1 Peter 1.7, we face various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, your faith, which is more precious than gold, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We face trials, we fall down, not to test and to strengthen ourselves, but to test and to strengthen our faith. And and if you've missed it, Faith is the opposite of our strength. Faith, biblical faith, is the, is the act of not trusting myself. Admitting my weakness, that I'm not strong, that I'm not capable, that I'm not enough, and putting that hope in Jesus. Putting my confidence in Him where it belongs. And the Lord graciously through our lives in this broken world, ordains trials and hardships. I find it funny that Bruce's dad talks as if there's some kind of design and plan here. Um, There is. God ordains, allows these trials, these hardships in our lives. He brings them to us, and we should even rejoice in them, be thankful for trials. Because in so doing, he drives us from that self-sufficiency which ends in death, into a Christ-sufficiency where there is life and joy and peace. That's why I want to look closely at Paul's prayer for the church here in Ephesians 3. Um, that's right at the, at the heart of this, that, that perspective. Um, as a church, we need Christ. We need to lean together toward faith. And as we go through trials and hardships and tribulation, um, to borrow a phrase from John Piper, we need to not waste our trial. It would be a tragic thing if the Lord were to bring us through a season of trial and we would come out the other side more confident in ourselves, more self-dependent instead of more desperate for Christ. So let me read this passage and, and then we'll walk through it together. Um, and, and see here in this prayer our greatest need for his greatest glory. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you pray with me? Father, we want more of this. God, give us strength this morning that your spirit would dwell in our inner being, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, that we might be more deeply rooted, more firmly grounded today and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. God, open our eyes. Work in our hearts today, God. We, um, we open ourselves before you. Lord, if there's anything that I've prepared, anything that I say that is not true to your word, God, I pray those words would fall to the ground. They would not be heard, but Lord, that your word would go forth and that as you promised, your word would accomplish what it sets out to do in us. God, we beg of you, be at work in us. In Jesus' name. As I said, we looked at verses 14 to 17 a little bit last week, and uh, so I'm just going to grab those verses and make that kind of recap slash point one of this week. So verses 14 to 17 is, is, is this, stand in the truth of his love. We've got to stand in the truth of his love. These verses um, gives a bit of context for, for Paul's prayer. Um, the first thing, he, he lays this foundation, this assumption that he's working on, that we're a family. Um, I'm not going to go back into the, the nitty-gritty details, but I made the case last week. Verse 15 um, should actually be translated, um, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I, I don't think Paul is talking about every family, your family, my family, my neighbor's family. Um, I think he is talking about the entire family, and there's good warrant for that in the Greek grammar, but let me, let me give you the more obvious reason that I think that. It's because Paul has been banging this drum from, from the beginning, talking about the, the family of God, the church of God, who are the people of God. We're a, we're a family, and there's a, a theological truth there. So flip back just for a second to chapter 1. It should just be kind of one page over. Look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. He talks about God our Father right off the bat. He's building this family idea. Verse 3, he comes back to it again. Verse 5, he drills in a little further. He speaks in the, the glory of our salvation and, and that we are adopted as sons of God. That's what it means to be saved, to be adopted into God's family with God as our Father. But where it really gets good is into the last section of chapter 2. Paul's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. and You kind of have to understand the context of the Old Testament to get the the significance of this. The Jews were God's chosen people. They were the ones that he made his covenants with. He's going to bless. And the, the Gentiles were everybody else. And the Jews hated the Gentiles. And the Gentiles hated the Jews. And there's this animosity there and this battle going on. And now, in Christ, we're brought together. The two are made one. We're united together in Christ. Verse 17 says that Christ came and and preached 
peace to those who are far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. They get the same message, and they're brought together into one new man. And, and verse 18 says, For through him, that's Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles alike, have access in one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father. Jews, Gentiles, people from every race and language and tribe and nation, there is one way to God. It's Jesus, and in him, we're family. This is a, a theological reality. This is an unchanging truth about those who are in Christ Jesus. We are a family. And when Paul says, then looking back at this prayer, um, chapter 3, verse 14, when he says, for this reason I pray, that's the reason. That's what he's pointing back to. He's, he's pointing back to this wonder of the gospel the Jews and Gentiles brought together, the, the hope that we have in Jesus. He's, that's what's driving him to this prayer. And as a family of Christ, the second thing he makes plain is we need Christ. We need Christ. Paul prays that God would grant that we would be strengthened with power. Do you see our need all the way through that? We don't have this. We are weak. We are lacking. We have need. And I think the two phrases here in this prayer kind of run parallel to each other. Again, I don't want to belabor the details again this morning, but, um, but he prays um, that we would be strengthened. Sorry strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I think those are parallel statements. He's saying the same thing with different words. Um, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Jesus. How does Jesus dwell in us? He dwells in us by his spirit. What does it mean to be strengthened? It means it will be rooted and grounded in love. It's the, it's the same thing, two different ways. And he prays that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit, our inner being, um, that, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, be rooted and grounded in love. Um, he's, he's begging that God would be at work in us. And, and I think we look down to verse 17. Uh, it explains what that strength looks like, right? that we'd be strengthened. Well, to do what? What kind of strength? Um, what kind of ability? What strengthened that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted um, is the, the metaphor of a tree that is immovable, that is strong against the, the wind and the storm because its roots are down deep in the soil of love. Grounded is the metaphor of a building. that it, it maybe, maybe founded would be a better translation. There's a, a foundation there that is set and secure, and the building is set upon it. And, and in what are we to be rooted and grounded? Well, Paul says in love. And, and our culture has a bazillion different definitions in this kind of airy-fairy love. That's not what he's talking about. He gets very specific. He's talking about the love of Christ. That's what we need to be rooted and grounded. If you just let your eyes go down to verse uh, 19, it's the love of Christ. That's what we need. This is what the, the church of Jesus Christ needs, to, to stand in the truth of his love together. As a family, recognizing our weakness by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and Christ dwelling in us, rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. 
our health, our life, our, our stability, our strength as a church has to be found there. How does that happen? How do we, how do we get there? Well, Paul says it is by Christ dwelling in our hearts. Well, how does Christ dwell in our hearts? How do I get more of that? How do I do that? Well, verse 17, by faith. So it's by faith that Christ dwells in us, and as Christ dwells in us, we are more and more rooted and grounded in love. It happens by faith, our trusting in him, our letting go more and more of our hope and our confidence in ourselves and trusting in him, in him alone. How do we grow in faith? Well, one way is through trials, through times of hardship and uncertainty and instability. God graciously brings these trials into our lives as the remedy against a fatal self-confidence, pointing us back to our need for Christ. So we're a family. We are objectively, theologically united together as one family in Christ, and we need Christ. We need to be deeply rooted in him, firmly grounded in his love. And it's really easy for us as individuals or as a church when things are going well and we get comfortable, we have peace and security, and we very quickly like to take credit for it. It's easy to start thinking that we're responsible for the good things that we're enjoying. I did this. And when trials come, we're forced to ask hard questions. We're forced to look at things a little bit differently. Those times of peace and security give way to insecurity, and that insecurity can be a beautiful thing as we learn where our true security is found in Christ. test our hearts. We need to be reminded sometimes that we don't have it all together, that we are nothing special. Um, We are not the super church. We are not the super Christians. Redemption Church, like every other church on the face of the earth, is not perfect. It is far, far from it. We have an opportunity As we go through trials, to check ourselves, to look into our hearts. And whether or not we've fallen into pride is a moot point. One thing we know for sure is that we do need to be more deeply rooted in Christ. Finding our identity, our value, our confidence, our hope in the simple truths of the gospel. We're sinners. All of us, each of us. We don't deserve one good thing from God. We haven't earned anything from him, and as sinners, we deserve his wrath. We deserve hell. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the penalty for our sin. He adopted us into his family. He gathered us together as his church, and he will build his church. But you know what? That doesn't mean he'll build Redemption Church, 
right? We are not the church. We're just, we're just a church. If Redemption Church disbanded tomorrow, um, the kingdom of God would suffer no loss. The mission of Christ would not be hindered. God would not be wringing his hands wondering what he would do without us. It is only because of his love and his mercy towards us that we continue to gather. It's only by his love that we exist at all. Let's not forget that, church. Let's put our roots down deep into the love of Christ, onto the foundation of the love of Christ in which we stand. Stand in the truth of his love. Secondly, Paul prays that we would grow in the knowledge of his love. Look at verse uh, 18 and 19. Praise that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we move deeper into Paul's prayer. We see this rooted and grounded in love and we have strength to comprehend. He prayed back in verse 16 that, that we would be strengthened with power, and, and this is the, the desired outcome of that strength. Strength not to be bold, not to be courageous, not to stand on our own or pick ourselves up, but strength to comprehend the love of Christ. Of course, Paul isn't satisfied to simply say that. Um, he wants to interject a few things. He wants to fill that out. So the first thing he says is to comprehend together with all the saints. Newsflash, we're still a family. Remember? Pursuing Christ, truly knowing the love of Christ, is a team sport. It happens in community. The church is not an optional piece of the Christian walk. It's not just something we go and do. It's something we are a part of. I hear this so often, things like, I'll come to church soon. I just got yeah, to get a few things figured out. Uh, I just got to get my, my house in order, and then we'll, then we'll come to church, or even just simply, I don't do church. It's just kind of a me and Jesus. We've got this wonderful thing, and, and, and I don't do church. It's not how it works. Christ has designed that we would grow in him. We would come to know his love to be rooted and grounded in love together with all the saints, rubbing shoulders with one another, encouraging each other, growing together. The next thing he adds is this kind of embellishment of the love of Christ. Um, he doesn't just say, know the love of Christ. He says, know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. He's, he's expanding on it. It's always interesting when you have passages like this in Scripture um, people, I think, always get a little bit carried away um, trying to give very specific meaning to this. And so one, uh, one commentator tries to, to argue this is the spiritual dimensions of the temple. I don't know what he means by that. Um, someone else tried to connect this to the, this is the cross, the height and depth. And um, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, I think Calvin puts it well uh, when he says, many of the fanciful interpretations may be subtly pleasing but have nothing to do with the meaning. Um, it's possible here, this could be a merism that uh, Kyle was talking about back in uh, Ecclesiastes. Um, 
kind of like saying from A to Z, right, from start to finish and everything in between. He's just he's talk, talking about how big it is from, from left to right, from high to low. Um, I tend to think he's just kind of using this poetic language to get our attention. He, he's trying to wake us up. He, he's, he's, he's getting his readers to stop and think. It's not just the love of Christ, but the, the massive nature of the love of Christ. This is a big deal. This is not a small thing. I think John Stott um, maybe gets closer to the spirit of the text. He doesn't, um, he's not trying to say this is technically what it means. He's, he's trying to kind of fill out this meaning. Um, this is what he says. It seems to me legitimate to say that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of this chapter, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him up to heaven. It's just that kind of poetic language. He's filling out the love of Christ. He's, he's trying to stir up our lazy hearts so we don't just kind of skim over this. We're forced to slow down and look at it. The greatness of the love of Jesus. That was not enough. He then says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What's that about? What, like, Paul, you're talking nonsense. To know that which surpasses knowledge, it doesn't even make sense. Well, some have said, and, and I think this is reasonable, that, that Paul is praying that we would know more of the love of Christ, but that the, the fullness of the love of Christ is beyond what anyone uh, will ever comprehend. And, and I think that's a true statement. Um, I think that's reasonable. I, I think Paul might be going a little further in it. I think he might be uh, speaking with a little bit more meaning. Um, I can't prove this in any clear way. I can't make a hard case for it, so I just kind of offer this to you for your um, consideration and, and see if this doesn't make sense to you. Um, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, um, you know that it has these two distinct parts. Um, Theologians, scholars talk about it as the, the indicative and the imperative. So the, the indicative means it's a fact. He's just stating the truth. The imperative is a command. Um, and so the first three chapters make up this indicative section. Paul's just been talking about the gospel and salvation. This is true. This is true of you, Christian. This is what it means to be saved, to be in Christ Chapters 4 to 6, then, are the imperative. It's the since this is true, then go and do. Since you've been chosen before the beginning of time and predestined and, and adopted and guaranteed an inheritance through the gospel of Christ, therefore, you ought to live this way. Now, that's, that's, the, that's the core of the gospel, right? That's exactly, that's so important, that distinction. It's not live this way, do these things, and then God will accept you. It's come to Christ be made new in him, saved in him, then we have a transformed life, then we go and do. But this prayer right here at the end of chapter 3 is right at that transition period between uh, the indicative and the imperative. It's the hinge on which the book swings. And I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at in this prayer. As he prays that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I think he's saying, you, you know this in your head. I've told you the facts. You get it in your mind, but you need to know this. You need to know it in a way that surpasses knowledge, that's, that's more than just facts. You need to really believe this, and that means 
live it out. This is what we need to really know. To know in a way that surpasses knowledge, that gets beyond book learning and and gets to real personal experience. Oh, that's fun. There's a dangerous person about. We'll not let, well, let's let them in. We'll give them the gospel. I won't put my phone by my microphone either. So he's talking about this, this real knowledge that goes beyond the head into the heart and the, the transformed life. So Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a sermon, uh, Matthew 16, 17, where, where Peter makes that glorious statement, um, the declaration, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus uh, responds to him saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, uh, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Okay? He got it. He understood who Christ was was the light came on now there were all kinds of people who could talk about the messiah um, but peter had had understood who jesus truly was not just an electrical an intellectual sense but a meaningful experiential way it was faith and in that sermon um, edwards makes this distinction he says um, truly there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a true sense of its sweetness. You see what he's getting at? So scientists could break down honey and run all these kinds of tests and and look at the molecular biology of it, and he knows that it's sweet. In fact, he knows better than any of us. He could maybe give us some kind of technical rating of its sweetness and, and break it all down. But does he really know the sweetness of honey? Like if his knowledge ends there, what is that? Does his scientific knowledge, vast as it may be, even compare to the simple understanding of a child who with eyes filled with wonder and delight breaks off a piece of the dripping honeycomb and shoves it in his mouth and says, it's sweet, it's delightful. The scientist understands that it's sweet. The boy knows it. He knows it beyond knowledge. He's tasted it. I think that's what Paul is praying for for the church. That's what Christ is calling us to. If I were to hand out a quiz on the way as you came in this morning and, and just asked, um, does Jesus love you? I mean, I'm pretty sure the answers would come back like 99%, 100%, yes. Yeah, I know that. I believe that. That's true. But do you know it? Do we really know it? Are you tasting it, enjoying it, resting in it? And even there, isn't there, isn't there a world of difference between the one who says, I've tasted honey, I remember that, that was really good. And the one who with sticky fingers and mouth full, whose taste buds are alive and senses are animate, says in the middle of it, the very experience of it, yes, honey is sweet. Remember Revelation 2, probably written maybe as little as 10 years after this letter, Jesus personally, through John, sends another letter to the church in Ephesus. You've abandoned your first love. 
You've fallen away from the the delight, the joy you once had in the Lord. You've left it behind. Do you know the love of Christ? Do you know it in a, a personal, experiential way? Are you currently walking in and living in that? Because that'll change the way you live. Not can you tell me the theological details of salvation, or have you at one time known it, but do you know it? Are you walking in it? Are you rooted and grounded in love? And, and if your answer is a casual, yeah, I'm good, I would plead with you to press a little harder on that. Because that first perspective is not wrong either. Do we ever get to the bottom of that well? Do we ever get to that point of having exhausted it? Where our lives are totally and completely conformed to the love of Christ. Everything I I do flows out of that fully and consistently. I sure haven't. If you think you have, maybe ask your spouse. Just, we don't get there. I've been asked a few times, what's the Lord taught you through your sabbatical? What have you been growing in? I shared a little bit last Monday how the Lord has been working in in my heart. This is right at the heart of it. This is right at the center of it. The Lord has mercifully crushed me in this, showing me new depths to this truth. Uh, I expressed it before, the simple phrase, I'm finding my justification in Him. This is what I'm talking about. Knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Um, Dane Ortland um, puts it this way. Your salvation in the gospel is far deeper, far more wondrous than walking an aisle or praying a prayer or raising a hand or going forward in an evangelistic rally. Your salvation is to be united to the living Christ himself. The love of God is what we feed on our whole lives long, wading ever more deeply into its endless ocean. And that feeding, that wading, is itself what fosters growth. We grow in Christ no further than we enjoy His embrace of us, His tender, mighty, irreversible embrace into His own divine heart. More of that, Lord. More of that. There's further in to go. Every trial, every hardship, every doubt, every seeing of our own sinfulness afresh is a new opportunity to wade in a little further, to dive down a little deeper, to see the compassion, uh, the mercy, the forgiveness, the love of Christ, to, to find our hope there. My tendency to want to please people My fear of man, my natural reaction to be defensive or argumentative, my my sinful desire to be be proven right, that's the remedy. Being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, knowing that I'm, I'm justified in Him. I have security and meaning and value in Him. We need to know the love of Christ to know it in a way that surpasses knowledge. None of us have completed that voyage. I sure haven't. But we, but we press forward. 
going deeper into the depths of his love, higher into the heights of his love. Look at the end of verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Read that again. Stop and think about what what is just said there. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That might just be the most shocking sentence in all of Scripture. Are you kidding me? Filled with the fullness of God? How can this be? How can we as, not, not, not just as finite creatures, but as sinners, as those who, let's be honest, are plagued with pride and anger and lust and deceit with all kinds of moral filth and guilt, how could we ever be filled with the fullness of God? Paul just told us. By comprehending with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's how. Colossians Uh, in many ways, is a parallel book to Ephesians, two letters written at the same time to kind of neighboring cities, similar themes, similar statements. Um, Colossians 2, 9 and 10, Paul writes this, For in him, that's in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So the the fullness of God consists in Jesus Christ. And Christ is fully communicated to us in his love for us. So to be rooted and grounded in that love of Christ is to, to, to fully know the love of Christ is to be filled with the fullness of God. And that's the goal. That's the end of all of this. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that, so that, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And again, that's, just not, that's not just personally, individually, though the church is made up of individuals, so it's, it, it, it's, it's not an either or. Remember back to the end of Ephesians 2. Paul just finished teaching that, that we, the people of the church, are being built together, united together into what? A new temple in which God dwells. Chapter 2, verse 22, he says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We as the church are supposed to be the the earthly dwelling place for God. And, And we fulfill that mission together with all the saints as we know the love of Christ and are filled with the fullness of God. As we go through trials, we need to lean into that. Allowing them to to further shape us and form us, to humble us. A renewed awareness of our own sin, our own weakness. To to be driven again with, with empty hands of faith. To receive Christ, to cling to him. That's all I have. I can't pick myself up out of this mess. We need to stand in the truth of his love. We need to grow in the knowledge of his love. And then finally, um, verses 20 to 21, we need to rejoice in the work of his love. We got a glimpse of this back in verse 16. He begins his prayer kind of pointing forward. He's praying according to the riches of God's glory, he, would make, he, may, he may grant these things. Uh, and then he really pushes into that, this last section, 20 to 21. Let me read it for us. 
Now to him. So Paul changes the direction of his speech. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is uh, what is commonly known as a doxology. Um, it's, it's a statement of praise. Um, so we all know the, the little song we sing that we call the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But, but every song we sing, every worship song we sing is a, is a doxology. And Paul's statement here, uh, I think, comes with three main parts to it. First, God is able. God is able. He offers this praise to God. He describes him as he who is able. This is like his identity. Praise the one that is able. He's capable. He's powerful. It's only fitting, looking back at what Paul has just prayed, that we are so weak, we need to be strengthened, the, the, the spirit in our inner being and Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith, that we be rooted and grounded and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and be filled with the fullness of God. What a hopeless thing to ask unless you're asking one who is able in a big way. He's able. He can accomplish it. He can, he can do it. And Paul, I think, is very aware of the, the contrast between uh, what he's just asked and, and the ability of God. Not a, not a contrast, but the flowing from one to the next. And so he uses um, this just over-the-top language. Like, you, you can't... The, the Greek word huper is kind of like our English word super. And so it kind of stands on its own. You can have, hey, that's super. Um, or you can attach it to other words and kind of increase their meaning. Um, and so we have, like supernatural, superhighways, superhero, superstructure. Um, so what Paul does here, he starts with a word, um, parasuo, which, which already means something like over the top, abundantly. It, it's a big word. It's a superlative. Um, it, it would have been enough on its own. Like God is overly able. And then he takes that hooper and he sticks it on the front of it. So he's redundant. God is super overly able, and then he uses huper as its own word standing in front of that. It's super, super overly able. So he's, he's like the kids who are like trying to come up with a big number, you know, and they just start stacking stuff up. There's like a million, bajillion, gazillion, like he's just piling it on. That's how able our God is. That's the power that we're talking about. That's the recipient of this prayer for us. Limitless, sovereign power. This is good news. He's able. The world says, you're enough. You're strong enough. You're capable. You can, you can handle this. Secretly, we know, no, I can't. That's a burden. You're not encouraging me. You're crushing me. I'm broken. The gospel says God is able. So much more than able. And we're weak. We doubt and we fear. He hasn't even rolled up his sleeves yet. We think this is impossible and he's not even breaking a sweat. He never has. He never will. And not only is he able, he is at work. He's at work. 
He's able according to the power that is working in us. And, and, and the, the, the word working there or at work, um, it, it speaks of, of an ongoing active process. The emphasis is he is working. It's not a static power. And he's working in us. It's not some kind of disconnected out there power. It's, it's, it's his power toward us. I read a fantastic article this week. Um, it was so encouraging to me. Um, Isaiah 53.4, speaking of Jesus, looking forward to the coming Messiah, says this, Surely he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. Do you catch what's going on? Jesus was in the process of working out God's glorious plan of saving us, and we looked at him and thought, he's the bad guy. God is judging him. God is striking him down. We missed it. We missed it. And the, the article used that verse as a kind of a launching pad just how often we misjudge the work of the Lord. We see one thing and, and, and we don't see what God is doing. We see the outside and we make our judgment and so often we're wrong. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Quotes from James Durham from the, the 1600s. I think this is so helpful, so wise. How many think that he, that's the Lord, is breaking when he's actually binding up. That he is wounding when he's actually healing. That he's destroying when he's actually humbling. Therefore, we should suspend passing judgment until he comes to the end and close of his work, not judging by halves. Let's not be guilty of judging the Lord too soon. Jumping to conclusions about what he's doing. We don't, we don't know. We don't know. He is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. And he's at work in us. And he absolutely will, as he promised, use all things for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. He will. He is doing it. Let's rejoice in the love of Christ. He is able and he is working. And you know what? Whatever he's doing among us, of this we can be sure, he will be glorified. He will be glorified. To him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is a, a statement of praise. It's also just a statement of fact. This will happen. This is where the world is going. What is God's plan in this world? What is his ultimate goal? It's that he would be glorified, that his glory would be put on display. That's where this world ends. Through all the mess and ugliness that we live in now, that's where it ends. How is he going to accomplish that? Through Jesus Christ. How is Jesus Christ going to bring glory to God? He'll do it in the church. He will do it by rescuing Wretched sinners from every nation and tribe and language and tongue, forgiving their sin, reconciling them to God, collecting them together into a family, and then by rooting and grounding them in the knowledge of his love that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. And it's through that 
plan, because of that reality that, that every redeemed sinner and every watching angel will sing out for an eternity of endless ages. It begins now. He says, uh, in, in every generation to generation, this earthly existence, and it goes on forever and ever. And he adds his own amen to his own prayer. It will be so. It will happen. Because he's able and he's working and he will be glorified. What an amazing hope we have, church. Trust him. Trust him. Rest in him. Stand firmly in the truth of his love, growing consistently in the knowledge of his love and rejoicing always in the work of his love.